Hey everybody, you're listening to Living Theology with the Luby Brothers, a podcast dedicated to understanding and living out the gospel. The gospel that brings us to God and transforms us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. We are your hosts, Doug, Greg, and Mark Luby. continuing in our series on passages of scripture that are significant to us. And Doug, could you introduce the passage that we're going to look at today? Yeah, today we are looking at Psalm 19, and we're going to focus on verses 7 to 14. But this passage divides into kind of two halves, where the first six verses are talking about God's general revelation, how he's made himself known in creation, Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And that's a beautiful verse, one of my favorites of many favorite verses. But then 7-14, to 14, he begins to talk about the law of God, the commandments of God, the precepts of the Lord, his testimony, his rules. And the way that he talks about God's law is so amazing to me because he's almost talking about almost like a love poem and there's this poetry of how much he appreciates delights in god's word and why we're going over this is because this is a passage that i want to be true in my life i want to see this kind of love for all of god's word and even specifically for the law which often sounds paradoxical when we're talking about the gospel how is it that we could even delight in the law. So Mark, I'm going to ask you if you'll read Psalm 19 verses 7 to 14, but for everybody that's listening in, if you would just listen to what specifically is David saying about God's commands, his precepts, and does that make sense? Does that resonate with you? So Mark, would you read that for us? Yep. Psalm 19 verse 7 to 14. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Yeah, so Doug, as we read through that passage, what sticks out to you or what resonates with you from that? I'd say especially verses 7 to 11 stand out. 12 to 14 do as well, but 7 to 11, he just keeps talking about how much the law of the Lord is perfect. The testimony of the Lord is sure. The precepts are right. The commandment is pure. The fear of the Lord is clean. The rules of the Lord are true. And we can agree with all of that, but then the second half of each verse 
he talks about what it does to his heart, what it does to his soul. It revives his soul. It makes wise the simple, rejoices the heart, enlightens the eyes, endures forever, righteous altogether. And so he's not just saying that God's word and his law and his commandments are correct, but also that they're delightful to him. And as I read a passage like that, I almost wonder, what does that look like? How do you live that out? To Because often we just kind of feel when we hear a law, oh no, this is one more thing that I'm not doing right. But he's got a very different response to God's word. There's joy. And that's what we want in our lives. But as you guys hear these verses about delighting and being rejoicing in God's word, in his laws... How do you guys think we do that without just becoming legalistic or moralistic? Yeah. And Doug, would you define when you say legalistic, moralistic, give us a little bit of insight. What do you mean when you say that? I feel that legalism is a really hard term to define because everybody uses it and has a sense of what it means. It's not a word that actually shows up in scripture, but it still is an important word. And a lot of times when people are being legalistic, there's this attempt to justify ourselves before God, to make ourselves right with him based on what we do. It can also be a way that we try and justify ourselves before others, trying to make ourselves look good in other people's eyes. But at the heart of it, there's this sense that if I perform the right actions, I will earn God's approval yeah. on my own. Is that what you were thinking? Yeah, I think that's good. I mean, acceptance based on your performance and like our cultural version of that would be a sort of moralism is common where if if I'm a good moral person, God will accept me. And those two terms will often be used interchangeably. But I think if you use legalism, it could be like specifically by abiding by the laws in God's scripture, I yeah. um, will make God love and accept me. Um, and I think when people use the term legalistic, they're also usually meaning self-righteous. Yeah. Which, if somebody is legalistic and feels good about themselves, then they're going to be self-righteous, feel like I am better than everybody else. Um, and so I think you, normally, at least when the word is used, people associate it with a self-righteousness or with maybe this deep sense of shame that I'm not good enough. Yeah. Greg, so for you, how do you how do you avoid that pitfall as you read a passage like this that is about the law of the Lord, that's about rejoicing the, the law of the Lord and living in obedience to him? How do you avoid that sort of a pitfall? Yeah, just I think just to set it up, one term that I've used a little bit before is reactionary doctrine. I think that we've kind of seen a shift in our culture or even just shift in Christianity where we're starting to really understand some of the truths of our justification being by faith alone in Christ alone, not anything that we do to earn God's love. And, but I think that maybe one tendency we can have when we do that is almost have a fear of then talking about laws or rules with a fear that if we talk about that at all, then it'll lead people not to understand that they're justified by faith alone. And so it's almost like a reaction. Then we throw the baby yeah. out with the bathwater, whereas at the end of Romans 3, it talks about, do we just overthrow the law? 
because we're saved by grace through faith in Christ. And it says, no, like on the contrary, we actually uphold it. And so we're no longer under bondage to the law to earn our standing with God. We're freed from that. But the law actually still has the purpose to lead us to life and joy in God. And it's actually for our good. And so I think that's one conviction that is, that I think, is just so important to help people understand that's been so foundational in my life that as God's calling us to obedience, he's actually not trying to take anything away from us that's for our good. And he's not trying to rob us from life and joy, but he's actually calling us to fullness of life and joy. And he's not um, calling us to begrudging submission, but the law of God is actually what's for our best. That's the way it was designed. And um, it's not just a bludgeon to make us do things that yeah. we hate doing but the way that god's actually yeah. orchestrated and made the world to work best he's realigning us to that and so it's actually meant to lead us to joy in life and if we're using it to try to save ourselves it's going to crush us and jesus as an example is going to crush us but mm. when we understand that we're justified by faith then suddenly these laws are an invitation to life and joy. And so that's, mm-hmm. I guess, a prerequisite. I might have not fully answered that, but I think that's how I think about this now. It's God's calling us to joy in life. Not always easiness of life or everything's going to go well, but what he has for us is way better. And I think that I've just personally seen that in my life in so many ways and in so many ways that maybe our culture says that Christianity is suppressive and it's leads to lack of freedom because it can create boundaries, but it's actually within those boundaries that I think we're designed to find fullness of joy in life. And whether that's in relationships or whether that's God's design for marriage and sex, whether that's um, designed for food and whatever it is, all these things that we sometimes look to for life as a functional God ultimately can't satisfy us and fulfill us if they're out of place. So that's, that's kind of just a prerequisite. I know I didn't fully answer it, but what do you guys think? Yeah, definitely. Um, in verse seven of Psalm 19, it says the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Then it goes on, it talks about the testimony, precepts, commandments, and um, as as I've understood, that term law there is probably referring in a broad sense to like the Torah, Old Testament law, um, kind of as a whole, like this idea of like what's come before it, the word of God. Um, and so there's this delight in the law of God, the word of God, um, which doesn't, and as you read further, you re- realize, though it may include more than that, it doesn't exclude the commandments, the precepts, it includes those as well. And I'd say, I would agree, I think culturally as like cultural Christianity or culture as Christians, we have an odd relationship with understanding the law of God. And specifically in our recent history, I think there's a lot of questions of how do we relate to the law? Um, in a lot of ways, this idea of the gospel is, is seen by some of this good news that we're saved by grace through faith and pitted against that is God's Old Testament law. And so sometimes this perception that we have this dualistic God who once taught us that we would make ourselves right with him by legalistic performance, by doing the right things. But thank goodness the New Testament came and we got a different side of God. And I was like, that's, that's not accurate. Um, 
And Doug, Doug, just give us some of the insights. Why is that a not a helpful view? Why, why do we not see a duplicitous God in Scripture? Which, obviously, we don't see a duplicitous God, but explain that for us. Yeah. If you think about the pinnacle of the law and commandments in the Old Testament, it's the Ten Commandments. Yeah. But even there, God has just delivered them from Exodus. He said, I am your God. I've delivered you. I am the one who has saved you. Now live out being my people. Follow these Ten Commandments. So the Old Testament doesn't say, do all these Ten Commandments, and then I will become your God and deliver you from Egypt. Mm-hmm. The Old Testament says, I have delivered you, Israel. Now live as my people. And yeah. we see that same message in Christ. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. And yeah, Christ delivers us, and then he gives us a new life to walk in. Um, and that's actually a couple things. One, that's how Paul argues um, about the idea of the promise of God's salvation coming before the commandments and the law, um, or becoming yeah. coming before the Mosaic law when we're talking about that, the law that was given through Moses. He actually, in Galatians, he does that. There's a group who are called the Judaizers, long story short, they think that their right standing before God is by observing the law. And um, Paul, when he argues with them in Galatians, doesn't say, guys, don't you know? That's just how God worked in the Old Testament. Um, that's not the New Testament. That's not Jesus. Now you don't have to worry about the law. The law doesn't mean anything. No, he says You're, you don't understand what the law means. Um, he actually mm-hmm. argues with them and says, look at Abraham, who was given the promise the promise that in his offspring the nation shall be blessed. This offspring it's pointing to is Jesus. And then God gives the people the law. So God gives his people the promise of salvation, and then he gives them the law. The law is a tutor. It's a guide. It actually directs and points them to Jesus. Doug, you're going to talk about this hopefully in a moment. I want to get you to talk about some of the uses of the law in a moment. But just mm-hmm. this rationale of the promise of salvation, the work of God's deliverance precedes, it comes before we enter into the law. Um, but with any relationship, there's a, there's law. Um, there's like obedience as a relational thing. Um, another, another way to think about it too is just um, the most well-known passage of scripture when it comes to being saved by grace through faith. I would say is probably Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for it's by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Very, very, very clear. Grace through faith, not your works, otherwise someone could boast. You are saved by grace through faith. But then the next verse, which is we should memorize with Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Absolutely. Is 2, 10, which says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And you get this image of what is the gospel? The gospel is this salvation that God is working through Christ. We were dead in sin. We had nothing to offer. We're in bondage. Christ comes. He frees us from sin. And then he gives us this new relationship where we walk with God and Greg, I even think about this for you having kids. So Jackson and Wesley, like what does it mean for you as a father to see your kids growing and maturing? Like how is that a good thing 
for you as you see that, as you see them walking in a new life, as you see them growing, maturing? What does that look like from a father standpoint? Yeah, I think the main thing is there's just a delight in it as I see them grow and take steps. And as they are getting older, Wesley's starting to take his first steps and walk around right now. And it's just, mm-hmm. it's just a fun phase. And when he starts to take steps, we celebrate and he often falls and that's, you know, it's sad, but we're all like, come on, man, are you serious? How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> but so it's, there's, so there's grace for him as he learns yeah, to walk. There's definitely grace. Yeah, we're like, are you kidding me, man? Come on. Get yourself <laughs> you don't have it yet. <laughs> yeah, it, no, it's a delighting in the growth and a delighting in the celebration. It's not, a uh, stoic disposition continually whether there's growth or not growth there's there is a delight and a joy that comes along with the growth and seeing where it's going and even that perspective kind of overarches it when he does fall and when he does he's starting to walk and he falls we know there's an end goal in mind we know he's going to be walking by the time he's 23 years old and he's going to be okay but it's just part of the process is falling and messing up and getting hurt totally yeah greg i feel like that is really helpful that you delight in your children learning to walk it is a good thing that that brings you pleasure as a dad no one would hear that and say wow greg you're just making your kids legalistic Although we could like almost pretend as if that's what you're doing. It's like, oh, don't you see that you are instilling in your children legalism because you care about them learning to walk? It's like, no, we don't argue that way. Because as a good father, you should be pleased as your children learn to care for one another, as they learn to walk and talk, and one day as they learn to read. All those things are good and pleasing, delightful to you, because you care about your children and because you're a good father, you want them to grow and mature. And I think it's helpful for us to realize that's also true about our heavenly father, that he cares about us as his children. So he wants us to grow up in him. Mark, mm-hmm. I think is two, eight to 10 is such a helpful passage because you're right. It makes it so clear. You are not saved by your works, but you are God's workmanship. You're his creation that he has made so that you would walk in his ways. Walking in the ways of the Lord, no, we don't do it perfectly. We stumble so much. It is really humbling. We see God's law and we realize, I don't live up to that. But I don't even need to see the law to realize I don't live up to what I'm calling myself to. So we stumble, we fall. But I think it is such an encouraging thing to realize that God actually is pleased when we grow in him. Yeah. Colossians 1, 9 to 10 uh, talks about walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Um, and, to, and sometimes there's this reaction to the idea that we can please God by our actions because people think, oh, now that I'm earning, I'm having to perform for God. But to realize, no, this isn't perform for me and then I'll love you. It's, I love you, says our Heavenly Father. Therefore, I actually want you to grow. 
to become mm -hmm. like Jesus. God takes pleasure in making us like Jesus. And that's a really good thing because we don't want a gospel that just says, I accept you as you are, and I'm going to leave you without the ability to walk throughout your whole mm -hmm. life. Yeah. We want a gospel where God says to us, I accept you as you are, and I am going to help you grow. Yeah. I'm going to help you become the image bearer that you were always made to be. This is really good news. And not only is God helping us to grow and to mature, to be conformed to the image of Christ, that also brings him joy. Yeah. And so often it's easy for me to think, oh, God is just displeased with me. Or for mm -hmm. me to think that if anybody actually got to know me, they would not want to be around me. But to realize, no, that's that's a lie. God is pleased with me as his child so that I and desires that I can grow to become more like Christ. And that brings joy to God. Like, Greg, you have pleasure and joy as you watch your children stumble in the ways that they're learning to walk. Yeah. Like that's that's really, really good news. Yeah. Even if we kind of get uncomfortable about the word pleasing God, we should want it to be true that we can live in a way that pleases him. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like for Greg, I mean, it's like you love Jackson and Wesley already. It's like they don't have to do anything to earn your love. But it'd be, it really would be weird if you're like, oh, man, are you, you know, excited. We're all celebrating Jackson and Wesley or Wesley walking and running around and moving around. And if you were just like, no, I cannot celebrate this. Like, I already love him. I already accept him. Uh, it's like, just rejoice in your son, like, growing and maturing. And I think that's the picture of, like, we do have an acceptance with God. Yet there is like this beauty of like, it's actually a beautiful thing to observe and to know God. And yeah. the law is where he communicates his perfect will. And we could get into this. We won't get into this now. But there are, yes, realities of what happened with the Mosaic law, ways in which there's certain ways we understand the law fulfilled in Christ. And so, yes, we don't eat. We do eat. Uh, we don't have to eat kosher, you know? So, okay, yes. There's some of that stuff that we could get into. We won't get into the nuances of that, but just in the broader term of to have the commands and the will of God expressed and that we get to actually walk into that. One of the biggest struggles in my life has been going from seeing the law of God as a burden to fulfill. I need to do this. I need to um, obey here and it just feels begrudging like I don't want to but I know like I know this isn't fun and it isn't good but it's the thing I'm supposed to do so you know so that I can be considered a Christian and be good whatever going from mm -hmm. that which is our moralism legalism not the gospel to going to the point where I can actually read a psalm like Psalm 19 or Psalm 119 and actually say even at times with tears in my eyes like oh what a blessing it is to obey God like what a blessing it is to know you, God, to experience life with you. And that only happens for me as I understand the law um, of God and as I relate with God through Christ, understanding Christ is my perfect righteousness. But now there is this true walk with God that I get to actually live out through Jesus. And like, that's a beautiful thing. Like to see the blessing of obedience, like it's a good thing that we have the law of God. Like I would not want to live without it. Like we would not want to live without it. Um, it's words of life that, that direct and guide us. 
Yeah, I like that a lot, Mark. It is still easy to hear God's commands, hear his words, and just be frustrated or angry. But one of the questions that's helpful for me to ask is if I'm upset at God's law and not delighting in it, is that because there's an issue with the command or because there's an issue with me and my heart? And we'll take, for example, the commandment, do not commit adultery. Yeah. Right now, I hear that law and I do not feel convicted. I don't feel super guilty because I do not want to commit adultery against my wife. So this law that's there doesn't bring up anything inside of me because I want to fulfill it. My heart currently is in line with the law. And so I can delight in that law and say, this is a good thing because my marriage is better. If a year from now, 10 years from now, I was at a spot where I wanted to commit adultery, I would hear that law and it would stand against me and it would hit my conscience. But that's not because the law is now bad. It's because my heart is at a place that I don't want to fulfill it. So when the law convicts us is often because we want to break it. And at that time, the law is helpful because it's a mirror to show us our sin. The law also might be like a burden to us if we think I'm going to earn God's favor. So Mm -hmm. if we're in that spot, like you guys have been talking about, where I'm going to be justified before God and men by what I do, then the law will also not be pleasurable because it does not do that. It cannot accomplish our right standing before God and men. So... In each of those situations, the issue, though, is not in the law, but in me. If I'm using the law wrongly, it will be a burden. If I'm using it, um, or if I'm using it wrongly, it will be a burden. If I desire to break it, it will be a burden. But when our heart's desire is in line with what God has made for us to be, then the law is no more of a burden than it anything else it's actually what we desire it shows us here's where we're gonna go and this reminds me of genesis 3 because the lie in the garden is basically the satan or satan the serpent telling eve hey if you want true life go to this tree take this fruit god is withholding from you don't you realize that god knows that if you eat of this you will be like God, discerning good and evil. So she hears the serpent tell her, God is withholding from you. And then she goes to take the fruit to try and become like God. But then instead of becoming like God, it makes them unlike God. It makes them aware of their nakedness, their brokenness, shame enters in. They begin to produce children then who are also sinful. So in trying to become like God, by making their own law, going against God's law, they become unlike God. All sorts of pain and brokenness come into the world. This reminds me of James 1, 14 to 15, which says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So this picture there of we're tempted by our own desires, And then this desire gives birth to sin. But what does sin produce? Death. This Mm. is actually a pretty vivid, painful 
image of what sin does. It offers and promises life, but then produces death. Yeah. Sin miscarries every time. Hmm. And a miscarriage is extremely sorrowful, painful. There's brokenness there because it's offering hope and life, but then the opposite comes about. And that's what happens in Genesis 3. It's what happens in my life every time that I go against God and every time that I choose not to do what he's asking me to do. And it's almost like, why do we still buy into this lie? If I'm hating the law, at some level, I'm still buying into that lie that if I go against God, I will find life. But that is never true. Mm-hmm. But it's the same lie that Satan uses over and over again. So if I'm resisting the law, it's probably meaning at some level, I think, if I take the fruit of this tree, I will get life because God is withholding from me. Sin will give me life, not death this time. Yeah. And the original, yeah, the original lie in the garden, God is God is withholding from you. It's interesting. I've heard it said that... Um, Essentially, yeah, that's that's where legalism first comes in, is in that sin. Because what are they? What is legalism? It's viewing the law of God as a burden to fulfill. Um, mm-hmm. And they, Adam and Eve, they see the law as a burden. They see it as a something that withholds from them life, and therefore they reject it. So even there, the the original issue is misseeing what God's law actually is, understanding mm-hmm. it as a burden, misunderstanding the purpose and intention of the law. And until we undo the lie in the garden, we will still be caught into that same lie, believing that sin will somehow satisfy. Um, My favorite corollary to go with that passage, that lie, because like you said, Doug, the original lie in the garden, I would phrase it as God is withholding from you. God's holding back. There's more life to be had if you just throw off his restraint, if you just Mm -hmm. disobey. That's, the most, you know, people can look at Genesis 3 and think, what a, you know, archaic mythological story. You know, whatever whatever critiques could be thrown at it. But it's it's like the most obvious true story to our own experience now. Like, I will be the God of my own life and I will determine for myself right and wrong. That's just mm-hmm. called like, that. that's just much of our American spirit of don't tell me what to do. You do you. I'll do me. Let me determine my own path. Um, mm-hmm. I have the ability to define anything that I want as right and good and true for myself. But the core that I liked that of God is withholding from you is Romans eight thirty two, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? It just makes, makes absurd the lie in the garden that God withholds. When you see in the grand scheme of scripture, God not withholding his very own son, like he couldn't make it mm-hmm. any more clear that he's not holding out on us. He's not withholding life from us. And that's where the gospel comes in, that God doesn't withhold his own son so that we would be saved, we would know him, and that his original design of knowing and walking with him in this obedient relationship would be restored. Every barrier removed through Christ, and now life is opened up to us. God giving us all things through his son and giving us the ability just to walk with Christ. Yeah, I'd say along those lines and just one tangible 
idea correlating to this is just with our sin then i think it's really important as you guys are talking about to identify what's really at the root of my sin and what am i what is the lie i'm believing and what ways am i not trusting god and i think that in addressing the areas of sin in our life unless we see what's underneath them we'll probably not gain the freedom from them that we often desire and so maybe i believe that it's usually a lie about God's holding back from me. What God's offering me isn't true life and joy. And so maybe it's God's design for sexuality and I'm single and it feels really restraining to be obedient to God. And so I think, okay, if I act out or if I go outside of God's design for sexuality, then I'll feel satisfied and then I'll feel complete. But what we know from anyone's experience that is a believer that does that is it doesn't bring the life and joy. It doesn't bring freedom. It actually leaves you deeper in the hole of hopelessness than you were before. Maybe it's something like anger, control, and there's something you're not believing about God, something you're not trusting God for, and you're taking it to your own hands, but it never satisfies. And it might be money and finances mm-hmm. and thinking if I this can bring me security and hope and joy, but you'll never have enough money that it actually offers you what it promises. And so sin always offers something and doesn't fulfill on it. Or like you were saying, Doug, with your marriage covenant that God has this design that we would not go outside of that. And if if we ever do, if we ever look to other people, it'll leave us more uncontent. It'll leave us more dissatisfied and more empty. And so in any area of your life, you can identify that. And I guess the last one that's coming to mind is just even finding rest and joy in the Lord. Sometimes I think, well, if I just binge on Netflix or if I watch a bunch of TV, (laughs) then I'll then I'll feel satisfied and content. And I think I'm really not believing that true life and joy is found in Christ, that he's the bread of life. When I come to him, I don't hunger or thirst. And I'm not believing that true rest for my soul is found in Christ. And so I'm saying, okay, I'm going to find satisfaction. I'm going to find rest in these things. And then it ultimately provides some physical rest. But at the end of the day, it gets to a point where I just feel kind of more empty and numb and not really like I'm experiencing true life. And so I'm what I'm not believing is that Christ really can offer the rest for my soul that revives my spirit in a way that can move me forward in life. It is so easy for me to think Netflix, video games, sugar, staying up late at night, all these things will give me life. Yeah. It's like, man, I'm 30. I shouldn't still be thinking that. (laughs) You would think by now I'd realize, no, I'm actually going to be better off if I go to bed at a healthy time. It's actually just these last few weeks where I've started to go to bed earlier and realized, wow, I feel way better throughout the whole next day and I'm able to pay attention. I'm more engaged with people who are around. I enjoy them more. It's like, that shouldn't come as a surprise to me it's obvious that i've known that that's true the whole way around but it can still be this pattern in me when i want more out of life to turn to sugar one of the jokes i always say is if you keep eating more sugar you never have a sugar crash (laughs) and i think sometimes we feel that way about sin if okay if i just keep going in it then i'll be satisfied but the reality is you can keep binging on sugar 
And eventually you're just going to feel miserable. There is that kind of uptick every time that you take it in, but eventually it just doesn't do that for you. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So then saying actually the fullness of life is found in walking in the Lord's ways. And he's shown us what that looks like. He's given us Christ, his own self to live a perfect life among us so we can walk in his steps. He's given us his word. He's given us even commands to show us what are the things that are good and healthy for us. And that's really good news. And we want to live it out. It is not easy. Jesus says that if anyone would come after him, they must deny himself, take up their cross and daily follow him. And it's hard to take up your cross and follow. It's a lot easier for me to turn on Netflix than to turn to the Lord for rest and joy. But when I turn to the Lord, I actually do find rest. Jesus says, come, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But it's so easy to believe that that won't be true. Yeah. (laughs) Or to still buy into the lie that sin will give me life. So we want to be at a spot where our hearts would cry out like the psalmist and say, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. And in my life, I'm seeing this actually is true. And I'm believing it today in ways that I don't, I didn't a decade ago or five years from now. And other places in my life, it's like, how do I not actually believe this yet? Why do I still buy in to something different than this? I want it to be that my heart would sing Psalm 19. Mm-hmm. Well, concluding thought I would have for this one um... Then, Doug, I want to see if you have any more final thoughts to close it off for Greg. But um, including thought I kind of have is if you our backdrop, um, and Greg, you mentioned this reactionary doctrine, our backdrop a lot of times when it comes to the law is we do come from a history where there has been confusion about earning our right standing before God by observing the law. And I think because of that, our, there has been a propensity to say, okay, well, then we're just not that. So it's not about obeying the law. It's not about obeying the law. It's not about obeying the law. And for salvation to be saved, it's not. Like, it is not about trusting in our righteousness. It's about trusting in the righteousness of Christ, what's called the alien outside of you, imputed, meaning given to you, righteousness of Christ. It's Christ who came and fulfilled the law perfectly. That's where we trust. But what we're saying is there's a beauty and a design that then as we know and walk with Christ, that we actually do live according to God's law, that he actually is instructing us, he's guiding us, he's continuing to direct us in obedience so that we experience life in him. And all of it is a blessing. The law is not a burden, it's a blessing. It's a gift. It's something beautiful that we rejoice in. We would not be, um, we, we would be, terribly, terribly missing if we did not have the law of God. Um, so Doug, Greg, any, any concluding thoughts for this? Mark, you mentioned earlier, um, lamp mirror bridal or the threefold use of the law. Yeah. And maybe I'll just close with something about that. 
Um, so the idea of the law's three uses. One is that it's a mirror. It shows us our sin. Psalm 19.12 says, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. There's a sense that we all know that the law reveals our sin. People usually agree on that. There's also one that's called the bridle. So Psalm 19.13, Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. So there's this sense that the law keeps us individually, but also whole societies from just going into rampant lawlessness, which is chaos, anarchy. But then there's also this idea that the law, the third use of the law is that it's a lamp. So it's a mirror to show us our sins. It's a bridle to restrain sin. But then is it also a lamp to show us the way to go? And that's where you're going to have different opinions among godly Bible-believing Christians. But the case that I'm wanting to make in my own life that we're saying here is that the law doesn't make us right before God, but it does serve to give us direction. It helps us to go. It doesn't give us power, but it's Sinclair Ferguson talks about it as the train tracks upon which the power engine of the gospel, the train moves us along. So if we try and use the law to provide strength and power to get right with God, it's not going to help us. But with the power of the gospel, the law and God's commands help us know where to go to live out the fullness of life that's in Christ. A poem that I really like says, A rigid matter was the law, demanding brick, denying straw. But when with gospel tongue it sings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. He's saying the law demands brick but doesn't give me the straw to make it happen. The law on its own does not have the power to get us right before God or right before other men and women. But when the law sings with gospel tongue, it bids me fly and gives me wings. Mm. Psalm 19, 7 through 11 is a song of a man, David, who sees that the gospel bids him fly and gives him wings. He's not seeing it just as this rigid matter that demands something I can't have, but there's this empowerment from God to live as we're to be, to live as his people, to become like Christ. Or what a good thing that God has shown us how we are to live. And my hope for myself, for you guys, for my kids one day, is that we would feel that the law of God is no more a burden for us than wings are burdens for a bird. Amen. Thanks for joining us for this episode. We hope it's of encouragement to you and that you join us next time for another discussion. The music excerpts for this podcast come from the song Enthusiast by Tours, which is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution license. More information can be found in the show notes.